Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. We're going to continue in our, in our series in Ephesians. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through to 5, 2, and we'll come to that in, in a moment. But, but and, and this message is actually called hashtag spiritual adulting. And we're going to be looking at what Paul has to say about maturity. So it kind of fits really well with what uh, Dave was uh, talking about and kind of that picture that came to, to mind. So there are two levels. One is very practical and you might take something away from this morning that is actually helpful for you as a family and that would be really useful, I'm guessing, and, and I'm hoping that that happens. But my invitation to you this morning is to see if you can engage with what the Lord has placed on my heart for you guys today um, and, and apply these principles at a spiritual level uh, and to see what really happens. Oh, you're a good man. Thank you. Ten litres. Here we go. One. Before we get into Ephesians, I want us to just step back for a moment from what we've been looking at in Ephesians and talk um, a little bit about uh, something that's very close to my heart, discipleship. And one thing that I find really interesting when we compare the way Jesus and Paul talk about discipleship is that the the language describing discipleship that runs through the Gospels and through the book of Acts is actually almost completely absent in Paul's writings. The terms like make disciples and and be a disciple... They kind of pepper Jesus' vocabulary all the way through, as well as through the historical accounts, the accounts of the early church. But in Paul's letters, these terms are nowhere to be found. In fact, Paul never once speaks about having disciples, not directly. This doesn't mean that the concept of discipleship is absent in Paul's thinking, not at all. Paul is as much about people becoming self-initiating, reproducing, fully devoted followers of Christ as Jesus was. Paul just states it in different terms. When you study the way Jesus did discipleship in the Gospels, you discovered that he used what I guess we might call a preparatory disciple-making model. That's quite a mouthful. It's easier to use the word apprenticeship model because that's what it was. And the premise behind this model is quite simple, really, that as Jesus' disciples grew, he adapted his leadership and changed his style to facilitate their ongoing learning and growth. And this is kind of the pattern that he used. You watch me and I will model ministry to you. And then a little later, we do ministry together and I will equip you to do it. As they kind of tracked through their journey together, he began to say things like, I'll watch you and encourage you to do it. And then we get to the stage where he's saying to them, you do it and I'll coach you. And then by the end of the gospel and into Acts, we find this. Jesus is kind of saying, you equip someone else to do it and together we'll multiply so that's, that's kind of an apprenticeship model and it's, the, it's a process similar to what has been used for centuries by master craftsmen as they take on and train an apprentice. In fact, to disciple literally means to train someone, to have a learn, to teach and to have a learner. 
That's what the word disciple means. And the goal of this training that Jesus was doing with the 12 was that, that, he would con- that they would continue his mission here on earth. And his intention from the very beginning was to extend his life and ministry through them, through this small core group of people. The purpose being not only to reveal the kingdom of God come to earth, but the expansion of that kingdom into the world through his church. That was the goal of what Jesus was doing as a disciple maker. He prays as much in John chapter 17. You'll be familiar with his prayer when he's praying for his disciples and also those who would believe because of his message, which is us, of course. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as, I, just as you are in me and I are in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see the process at work? However, when you examine Paul's practice of discipleship, you see something quite different. And as we've been discovering, if you've been following along through our study of Ephesians so far, Paul directs his efforts predominantly towards helping to church to understand that being a Christian is actually about being in Christ. Let's say that, in Christ. In Christ, that's his premise. And interestingly, Paul's predominant view on discipleship is best seen through the framework of family. He frequently, frequently uses images of spiritual fatherhood and spiritual motherhood, and he often addresses those he is writing to as infants and children. He even characterises himself on a number of occasions as a nursing mother or a loving father. Family is not the only framework that Paul uses because he also uses a fair bit of uh, talk and language around uh, athletics and elite athleticism, you know, the Olympians. Um, So he kind of has a couple of frameworks, but predominantly it's a family framework. I'm, I'm calling this a parental discipleship model. And it's best described as an empowerment model. The process and goal of this model is to see new believers shaped by their identity in Christ, say that, in Christ, as they grow and develop into their spiritual potential in community. And that's really important. And we're going to be talking about that today. Empowerment means to give power to someone. To be empowered means that you have received the power that you need to achieve your desired goals and outcomes. It is the process of becoming stronger and more confident, especially in regards to controlling the direction of one's life and claiming one's rights. That's a dictionary definition. And like any loving parent, Paul longs to see his children those in the church, grow into maturity and enter into a full participation in what he is doing. The picture that we get here is more like, I guess, a family tradition, a way of living passed down from one generation to the next and to the next. Let me frame all that in another way. Jesus was training workers that would help him build and establish the church. Paul was raising a family who would carry the name of Jesus into the future as the church. 
as the church. And what I find really interesting is that when you view discipleship through this framework, you begin to discover that the whole process of growing spiritually mature Christians is more like raising children. Who's got children? Who's had children? Great, most of you. You'll be able to connect with this. And if you haven't yet, or you're not even thinking about it, this is still applicable, so don't tune out. Because that, remember, as I said, this operates on two levels and we're looking for the, the spiritual connection here. But it's like raising children. And what I find unique about this model is that every member of the family is growing and moving forwards towards spiritual maturity at the same time. We've got four children, Rosemary and I. Um, two of them are adults now. One is... 21 this year and the others turned 18 um, and they're both living out of home which is a really rude shock for us actually we really like it but um <laughs> but especially especially like Rosemary and I were talking about this especially our 18 year old um one minute they're a baby next minute they're like I'm an adult <laughs> yeah you're not <laughs> but I am and as parents that happens real quick doesn't it? <laughs> Way too quick. But for them, it's an eternity. We, we have a 15-year-old, I can't wait to move out of home, I might go and live with my brothers. <laughs> really? It can't come quick enough for them. Like, it takes forever, this development. But for us as parents, it's slow. It's, it just goes so fast, you know what I'm saying? Oh, good. It's all a bit confusing having kids sometimes. Obviously, when we're talking about spiritual maturity, we need to address the reality that every, every one of us is at a different level, um, and some of us uh, are more down the track than others, and that's actually important, and no one, me no one member is more important than the other, as I said. It's just that we have varying roles and responsibilities in a family, yeah? Yeah. Recently, I've been rereading an um, excellent book uh, called a Transforming Discipleship by Greg Ogden, and he explains Paul's parental model of ministry of discipleship this way. Um, and he uses the childhood development kind of theory model, um, which, which really kind of resonated with me, and I hope it does with you. We're just going to spend some time looking at it very quickly. And this is kind of where there's a dual layer. The, the, the next few moments, I might say some stuff that just helps you as a parent. And if that's, if that's helpful, then bless you. You need all the help you can get. I know I do. But basically, there are four stages in, in child development theory. There's infancy, then there's childhood, then there's adolescence, and then there's adulthood. And each of those stages um, sees the need of the child and the role of the parent vary greatly as you move through them. Infants, by and large need a caring and loving environment to thrive. We know that as a fact. They need unconditional love and protection. As infants become toddlers, they need people around them who will shape them and nurture them. This is where values are modelled and caught. It's where boundaries and guidelines are set and where firm instruction instils a sense of right and wrong. The parent's role in this stage is that of primary caregiver protector and nurturer. Infants aren't really looking for anything in this relationship. Babies are blimmin' selfish. 
but they're not really looking for anything. There's things that they need, but they're not really... They're totally dependent on the people around them to give them what they need. Childhood sees an increase in the level and intensity of the modelling and the direction that's given. It's the stage of life where children begin to see where they fit within their family and within their community and within their world. They get to test and retest the values uh, that they've inherited. The parent's role is to champion, teach and encourage. Children are looking for heroes, people they can look up to and aspire to be like. Adolescence sees the child begin to push out and explore their identity as their confidence in who they are and what they can do grows. Learning transitions from concrete to cognitive and trial and error become one of their most important teachers. The parent's role transitions into one more like that of a coach, offering support and consolation as needed. Adolescents increasingly grow up by facing the consequences of their actions and adolescents are looking for affirmation and belonging. They need people around them who will listen to them and love them unconditionally as they work out and step into the world of adulting. Adulthood is marked by the development of mutuality. That's a hard word. Mutuality. As adults themselves, children begin to relate to their parents in a way that is mutually beneficial, hopefully. There is a reciprocal relationship where both the child and the parent empower one another. This can be seen most clearly when parents become grandparents. Have we got grandparents in the house? Oh, bless you. I'm not a grandparent yet, thank you. However, adult, a lot of adult children don't know this, but this is actually what they need. Adult children still need parental figures in their lives to thrive. People around them who love, accept and approve them, no matter the choices that they've made. People who will offer advice, guidance and wisdom when it's asked for, and sometimes when it's not, if necessary. And perhaps most importantly, people who will just be present with them as they go through life's joys and trials as an adult. Let's just pause there for a moment to consider those four stages. Infancy, childhood, adolescence, adulthood. And just take a moment to think about where you might be at in the spiritual sense in regard to those stages. Let me explain what I mean. If you're a brand new Christian, like just become a believer in Jesus, then you're an, you're an infant, you're a baby or a toddler in, in Jesus. Is it okay to use that type of language? You, you get what I'm saying, don't you? You're young in the faith, you're a baby, you need people around you who will love on you and nurture you and teach you and care for you because, let, let's be honest, sometimes, like with anything new, it's a walk in the dark. You need people to be there for you. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're a, um, a child in the faith. You've been a Christian for a little while, but you're still really only kind of getting your head around what it means, what the Bible means, um, what it means, you know, all those types of things that, that the Bible teaches and that we talk about in church. It could be that you're an adolescent in the faith. That's a scary thought, isn't it? 
But I want to suggest that that's where most Christians get stuck. Somewhere between adult... I'm not even going to use the word young adult because that's not even in the schematic. But you will get stuck in the kind of this transition between adolescence and adulthood when it comes to spirituality. We, we, we kind of know what our identity is, but we're not sure. We struggle with our identity. We want people to affirm us. We want to belong, but we also don't. We want to be a part of the crowd, but we want to be an individual. It's messy. It's horrible. But Paul urges Christians and us through his writings to not stay there. You must transition to adulting. Because that's what it means to be a, a spiritual... That's what it means to be a disciple, to be spiritually mature. There are plenty in this room who would fit the category of spiritual adult. And we, and we need you. And as you're thinking about this framework, it might actually occur to you, as it does to me, that you can actually be in every level at the same time. <laughs> and actually, that's okay. It's actually normal. What's not okay is if you stay at that level. Because that's not healthy. It's not, not only is it not... Imagine if, we, oh, imagine if we had teenagers all our life, hun. Oh, my goodness. My wife and my eldest daughter love babies. Ah, oh, I'm not so keen. I was so glad when I didn't have to buy nappies anymore. Ah, oh, oh, they're cute, but meh. <laughs> but, but we've got to grow. It's the natural order of things. It's the way it's created. And what's true in the, in, in the spiritual is true in the world, and what's true in the world is true in the spiritual. It's a transition. We're made to move from one to the other. But as you're thinking about your life, I'm guessing like me, you go, you know what? I'm actually a baby in some areas of my spirituality. And I'm a child in others and I'm an adolescent in some. But you know what? There are some areas where I feel like I'm adulting okay. And that's good. It's what we want. But I hope this morning you see that what Paul is saying to the church and to us is that we need to be moving from one to the next. That's the goal of discipleship. Oh, I spent too long in there, but that's good. I hope you understand what I'm saying there. There's a second way we might look at this. Because where there is a child, there must also be a parent. Just think about that for a moment. Where there is a child, there must also be a parent. And I wonder where on this spectrum you find yourself as a spiritual parent and I actually don't care what age you are I don't care whether you're 7 or 14 or 21 or 36 or pushing 70 where are you on this spectrum of spiritual because you know what even kids can mentor each other I've heard 13 year olds say spiritual things that just floored me as they engage with God's word. Just floored me, just made me go, oh my goodness, I am such a baby in my understanding when it comes to that. And you know what? That 13 year old just nailed it. They're a spiritual adult and they're still working it out. But you know what I'm saying? It's not about who's better than anyone else or who's higher up the tree than anyone else. It's, it's about this journey that we're on. As we jump back into Ephesians this morning, I'm inviting you to discover that Paul not only lays out for us how to go about becoming spiritually mature Christians, 
he also gives us a clear picture of what it looks like to be spiritual parents or disciple makers. Are you ready to jump in and really dig into this text this morning? Because there's some profound truths in here which will just blow your mind. I know they will. See, one of the common threads that runs through Paul's parental discipleship model or empowerment model is the idea of imitation. Say imitation. Oh, good. I like that. I, I like this. Imitation. So you're imitating me when you do that, right? Good. Just practicing. You see, Paul was instrumental in uh, bringing about the spiritual birth of so many people in all the places that he travelled. The churches in Corinth, for example, was a good example. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, this is what he writes. He writes, In Jesus Christ I became your father through the gospel. And then in verse 16 he goes on to draw out the natural implication of that reality when he says, And therefore I appeal to you, then be imitators of me. I am your spiritual father, so imitate me. The Greek word for imitate is where we get the English word for mimic. Paul uses this word multiple times in in many of his letters, Corinthians, Philippians, Thessalonians and others, and it's often, very often actually, coupled with another Greek word, typos, which can be translated as example or model or pattern. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he further clarifies this idea when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Have you heard that before? Or imitate me as I imitate Christ. But have you ever wondered, as I have, why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and why he doesn't just instruct the new believers to imitate Christ? Wouldn't that make more sense? Well, not really. It turns out that it has to do with Paul's understanding of what we might call an incarnational theology. Now, that's a big word for a Sunday morning, I know. That's important, an incarnational theology. It's the idea that God embodies his presence in his people. Let me, let me ground it for you in something that might work a little better. It, there's a hor- there's a, it's a stupid saying. Am I allowed to say that? It's a stupid saying when you say to your kids, uh, don't do what I do, just do what I say. <laughs> That's bad parenting. I'm saying that because I've done that. <laughs> I'm not judging anyone. But that's not incarnational because that's, that's, you know what you're doing when you do that? Again, seriously, I'm not judging. But he's saying, I live one way, but you shouldn't live like that. You should, you should live how I say you should live, even though I don't live like that. Can you see how bad that is? That's not incarnational. <laughs> it's actually a mixed message. It's actually quite destructive. But Paul understands this idea of incarnational, um, uh, incarnation. God came to us fully in Jesus. What a wonderful truth. Can you get your head around that? God came to us fully through the man Jesus, through his son. I've lost my place. He came to us fully in Jesus. Oh, and when Jesus ascended, God sent his spirit to dwell in us so God, God dwelt in his son fully when Jesus ascended bodily into heaven. God sent his spirit to dwell in us fully, his Holy Spirit. And we in turn became living reflections of him in this world. When you're a follower of Jesus, God is incarnate in you. <laughs> wow. Not partially, 
fully in you. So what Paul is really saying is this. Be like me in the sense that I am living as one who has the Spirit of God living in me and I live like this because I am imitating how Jesus lived because he lived as one who had the Spirit of God living fully in him. Do you see what Paul's doing there? So you should do the same. Paul doesn't say imitate me because I'm good or better or more holy. He's saying imitate the way I live because I'm imitating him. So you should imitate him as I'm imitating him and together we imitate him. Does that make sense? Good. Because sometimes we get kind of caught up on that. Imitation. The idea of imitation has its origins in the meaning of this Greek word typos because quite literally typos means to strike or to make an impression. Um, maybe this is not a good suggestion, but kids, when you go home, go into Dad's shed and get the hammer out <laughs> and a scrap bit of wood and just hit the wood with the hammer. And what do you see? Does anyone know? You see a dent. Well, that's typos. It's an imprint. It's an, it's an imitation of the hammerhead. <laughs> Don't do it on the furniture, will you? <laughs> but that's what the word means. It's where we get the word typing from. Here we go. Who's used a typewriter before? <laughs> yeah. Who still uses a typewriter? It's a keyboard now, isn't it? Who, who's never used a typewriter? Everyone else's hands should go up. Who doesn't know what a typewriter is? Oh goodness, I am showing my age, aren't I? We don't use typewriters anymore, but that's exactly what a type writer is. Uh, let me explain how it works. It's, I wish I had one. It's kind of fun. Ding. You, you press a key and a mechanical action happens and it, it's like this. An arm goes really quick, lightning fast, except if I'm typing, it's more like but you press a key and a mechanical action makes an arm go and on the end of that arm is the impression of a letter or a number or a symbol. It's kind of embossed on the metal head and it hits a ribbon which contains ink and transfers the pattern onto paper. Typos to strike, to imprint, to imitate. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. As you press the key, it leaves the mould impacts the paper and leaves a pattern. Paul's goal is to live his life in such a way that it leaves an imprint on those he rubs shoulders with. Do you want to live like that? I pray that you do. It leaves an imprint in those that he rubs shoulders with. Those people, in turn, they've been so imprinted by this way of living that they, in turn, imprint those around them, and so on and so forth. Now, Paul is not claiming to be the mould, by the way. Paul always defers to Jesus. Always. For Paul, discipleship is about becoming a spiritually mature adult believer. It's a process that involves the whole community, the whole Christian community, spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers who will nurture, comfort, protect, teach, model, champion, encourage and release others into spiritual adulthood. The church working as it should. So what, exactly what he says in Ephesians um, 
uh, earlier in the, in the chapter, in, in verses 11 and 14. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do the work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come into such unity uh, in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. But it's, not, it's just not the, just the preachers, the prophets, the evangelists and the leaders whose responsibility is to do that. Because in other letters, he talks really clearly about the responsibility of everyone to be doing that. The body of Christ. All of us together, knit together as the body. Responsible for this process of typos imprinting Christ's likeness onto other people as we live that way. Is that, is that making sense? Awesome. Let's dig a little deeper. So keeping all this in mind, we come to this week's section of... That's just the introduction, by the way. We come to this, uh, this section of Ephesians. Listen carefully to what Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 17. I'm going to read from the, the NLT. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasures and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I want to spend some time this morning looking more closely at just a few phrases from this section of the passage. Because there's a particularly powerful truth, as I said before, in here that is actually really easy to miss. Unfortunately, it's easy to miss because the English language doesn't have the same nuance that the Greek language does. So, so my job as a teacher is to bring that out for you so that you have a deeper understanding of what's going on in this passage. In verses 17 and 18, Paul paints a grim picture of how unbelievers live. They are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? But it describes each and every one of us before we met Jesus, if we're honest. Paul's exhortation is crystal clear. Don't live your life this way. Don't. Why? Well, he tells us in verses 20 and 21. Unfortunately, it doesn't, he doesn't tell us very well unless we dive into how it was originally written. Let me explain what I mean. And stay with me on this because this is mind-blowing. A literal translation of verses 20 and 21 reads like this. And listen carefully to the difference. But this is not how you learned Christ. You have surely heard him and been taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Let's unpack that for a moment. For starters, this phrase, learned Christ... Not learned about Christ, which a lot of translations have, but in Greek it's, you have learned Christ. It only appears once in Ephesians and it's here. And the Greek word for this phrase is manthano. Stay with me. And when it's used here, it makes Christ the direct object of the learning. Does that make sense? You have learned him. 
You've not learned about him, you have learned him. I'm not really an art buff, really. I'm into photography and stuff. And, you know, if you show me a few pictures of some of the, the people that I hang out with in the severe weather photography community, I could look at a photo and go straight away, that's a Jordan, because I know his style. But if you're, if you're into painting and you went to the gallery and if there were no labels, a lot of people who appreciate art can walk up to a picture and go, that's a Rembrandt, because I know the style. You see the connection here? You don't personally know Rembrandt, but you know him because you know his imprint. It's obvious because you know him. You've learned, if you've studied art, you've learned him. Yeah? It's the same with literature. Someone can read a piece of poetry, and if you, if you study literature, you can go, that's a, uh, I don't even know someone else said that, that's a Shakespeare. <laughs> I've studied him, I've, I've learned him. Do you see what Paul's saying? Not about him, but you've learned him. You recognise him. When you see his work and hear his words and, his, and notice his character, you know exactly who it is because you know him. That's what Paul is saying here. That's in, it's amazing. You have learned Christ. In other words, it is Christ himself that you have learned. And he is more than just the subject matter. He is the sum and substance of the gospel which is what Paul's talking about here. To learn Christ literally is to know him. To know him is to know his teaching and live like him. Interestingly, the word manthano is derived from another Greek word, manthetes, which literally means disciple. I told you before that disciple means uh, someone who is a trainer, but more accurately, a disciple is someone who has been learnt something. <laughs> Is that bad English? But a master tradesman becomes a master tradesman because they have learnt from a master tradesman. And it's quite possible that their styles will be similar. In fact, you can, even in architecture, you can look at buildings that have been built and you can know the influence of that architecture because that influence could be hundreds of years old and people will say, oh, that, that, here's an architecture which studied under this school of thinking because you can see it in their work. Did you get the picture? I know it's a bit of a head stretcher today, but I really want you to see that. You have learned Christ. In simple terms, because that's always helpful for me, what Paul is saying here is this. When it comes to not living like the Gentiles do, it's not enough just to know about Christ. You must know Christ. There has to be a deep and profound understanding of who he is and what he has done for you. The second phrase that I want to point out, point out here um, is when Paul says, uh, you have surely heard about, uh, you have surely heard him. Paul is affirming a reality here. It's not kind of a question or an assumption. He's just he's saying, I know you've heard about him. That's literally what he's saying. I know that you have heard him. You have to remember that the people that Paul are writing to never met Jesus. They never heard him speak or saw his miracles. The only thing they know about Jesus is what they've been told about Jesus by Paul and other, other people who have spoken about him. None of them have had a personal encounter with Jesus like Paul had on the road to Damascus. So what Paul means is quite simply this, that when he and others have preached the gospel, these people had heard it as though God had spoken to them. Does that make sense to you? 
You know him because you heard it and it was as if he had spoken to you. So I know you know him. It was God who opened your deaf ears and, 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 and kind of opened the... I mean, we, last time I was here, we talked about the, the windows of our heart, God shining light through the windows of our heart. It is God who has done that. So I know you know him. It's as if Jesus has called them himself to himself. And they heard the gospel and followed his call by faith into repentance and a new life. The third phrase that I want to highlight is this one, that you have been taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Notice that it is not taught by him, as some translations would have it, but you are taught in him. This is important. This phrase, in Christ, sums up Paul's view of what it means to be a Christian. And we only have to go back to Ephesians chapter 1 to get a picture of what we are in Christ. We have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. He made known to us the mystery of his will which he purposed in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In him we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God's surpassing power towards us was revealed in Christ when he raised him from the dead with power. Are you beginning to see the picture? The believers in Ephesus knew Jesus personally. They'd heard his call personally and responded personally in faith to him and in him. And they had been taught and they were continuing to be taught in him. In other words, every day they were growing in their knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for them and what it means to be a follower of him. They were becoming, on a daily basis, more Christ-like. Typos. Mimic. Imitation. On a daily basis. One more observation as we come to a close. But this is not how you learned Christ. You have surely heard him and been taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. I want you to notice, because you might not at first glance, that Paul makes a deliberate shift in how he refers to Christ in this sentence. In verse 20... He talks about learning Christ. But here he says that the truth is in Jesus. Yeah, and what's your point? But this is the only time in Ephesians where Paul uses the personal name Jesus. So you've got to ask yourself, why does he do that? Because it's intentional. There's a reason for it. You understand that, that Jesus' surname is not Christ, right? It's not Jesus Christ, like my name is Matt Frigga. Like, I'm being silly, you know that, I know you know that. Christ or Christos is a, is a term which means a Messiah or, or anointed one. So it is Jesus, the anointed one. It's actually a title, Christ is a title. Jesus, the Christos. And his, real, his name actually is Yeshua in, 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 you know, in, the, in his language. But, so Yeshua, the Messiah, is his name and, name and title. Do you understand that, yeah? So for Paul to use his name intentionally, it's the only place where he does it, 
is really significant, and I want to show you why, because this is really what grounds all this for us uh, here in 2020. The name Jesus, or Yeshua, focuses on the historical person of Jesus. Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus who worked and grew up as a carpenter. Jesus who walked around Israel teaching and healing. Jesus, the man who was crucified. Jesus who was raised to life from the dead. Jesus who was seen by many of his disciples and hundreds of others after his resurrection. And Jesus who ascended bodily into heaven. Jesus, the man, the real person, the flesh and blood walked this earth, ate and breathed person, the historical Jesus. But why does Paul want us to think about the truth that is in Jesus? Author Martin Lord, Lloyd Jones put it this way The Christian is not saved by a philosophy of redemption. They are saved by the historic person. Jesus of Nazareth, son of God. All of the world's major religions are built around teachings and ideas and philosophies, but in stark contrast, the truth of the gospel is rooted in an historical Jesus. And this is important. Everything, and I mean everything in the Christian faith, rests on the truth being grounded in the historical person of Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead. So Paul's point in verse 20 and 21 is that the changed life stems from the transformation that God works in us through the gospel. When we know Jesus Christ personally, through faith, we become changed people. Paul's exhortation to us is that we might live as changed people. Becoming spiritually mature adults in the faith. And I want to close by highlighting one important factor. Spiritual adulting is not done in isolation. Never. Spiritually healthy, mature Christian adults are formed in community because they are the result of good spiritual parenting. It's the natural order of things. It's the spiritual order of things. That means that you and I must model what Paul tells us in verses 22 and 24. And this is a whole different message, but I'm just going to finish with this summary. When he says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Here's a truth that you need to hang on to. As a believer in, in Christ, as a follower of the historical Jesus, as one who has been saved and born again, you are already righteous and holy. Yeah? It's not an if or a maybe. That's what you are. So because that's true, don't live like them. 
because that's not how you learn to Jesus. Does that make sense? You don't need to live like them because they didn't come to know Jesus because of the way they lived and neither will you. You're already righteous and holy. So live like it. I stumbled over this verse for a long time. It's like, you know how much hard work it is for me to take off the old me and put on the new that I'm supposed to be? Well, that's not even what it means. It's not. Because it's not actually something I can do. I can, I can learn to do it better as the Spirit helps and guides and as my spiritual parents help and guide. Praise the Lord that little adults don't pop out at the, in the birthing suite. Because, you know... <laughs> That's just weird, isn't it? But you know what? What a mess that would be in the world. Because becoming an adult is a process. You need to be an infant. You need to be a child. You need to go through adolescence so that you can understand who you are as, a, as an adult. It's the natural order of things. It's the spiritual order of things. And, and children need parents. And spiritually mature adults need spiritual parents. Who are, they're not more mature they're just helping in the, in the, they're walking it together. And you know, what the great thing is, by the time you get to everyone being an adult, there's this mutuality. And Paul talks about this in, rela- in relationship to his, his relationship with Timothy. There's a mutual benefit. There's mutual benefit. Iron sharpens iron. We encourage one another. The children can bless the grown up. The grown up can bless the child. The adolescents can bless everyone. Adolescents are awesome. There's so much energy needs to be shaped and guided and released. Throw it off. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Because, listen to the way it's phrased, because it makes sense once you actually stop and read it properly. Put on your new nature, created to be, your new nature is already created to be like God. Put on your new nature, which is created to be like God. You are already truly righteous and holy so live like that encourage one another to live like that as we all strive to model this way of living and as we seek to imitate those who imitate Jesus we will begin I really believe this and you've already been talking about this from the stage this morning so I'm glad it wasn't me saying this but your own elders saying this as we as we do this we will begin to see our community thrive and grow and develop into its full potential. That's what will happen. That's all that can happen. (laughs) Paul sums up this whole section in his letter in the opening verses of chapter 5. And I'm going to close with this, and it can be our prayer, I guess. And I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation because I love the way they've captured the nuance here. Be imitators of God in everything you do, for then you will represent your father as his beloved sons and daughters and continue to walk surrendered to the extravagant love of God, to the love of Christ. For he surrendered his life as a sacrifice for us. His great love for us was pleasing to God like an aroma of adoration, a sweet, healing fragrance. Is that not what our community needs? Hashtag spiritual adulting. (laughs) Father, as we just kind of allow this word to penetrate into our hearts,
way that you cause it to grow and then kind of well up and consume us and overwhelm us. Not to the point of not knowing what to, what to do, but to the point of just wanting to do, just wanting to be who we are in you. Your beloved sons and daughters. And I pray for those in the room who are not just physically parents, but who act as spiritual parents. And really, that's all of us. There's no excuse. But I pray that as we learn to parent well, spiritually speaking, that we would see this family grow and transition through the stages so that all might be presented as spiritually mature on the journey of spiritual maturity. Always moving forward. Always stepping into what you have always trusting in faith that you will lead and guide and shape and transform us. And as we do that, and as we do that in, in, in full view of community, it will shape and transform the place where we live.